This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Carol Off. Good evening, I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight. The wait of waiting, as Iran promises to punish those responsible for the downing of Flight 752, one family is still waiting for information on their loved one's remains, and they may have to hold a funeral without her body. Trust but verify. That's how Canada's foreign affairs minister sums up his government's approach to Iran, insisting that Ottawa will hold the regime accountable for its promises and judge it by its actions. Poked by the bear, President Trump's road to impeachment began with him seeking information on a Ukrainian oil and gas company, which, according to an American security firm, was recently hacked by Russian intelligence. Out but not down. After sheriffs in Oakland, California, evict a group of homeless mothers from a vacant house they were occupying, the women vowed that their fight is far from over. In Canada, you say? Pity. The Globe and Mail's chief editorial writer says Canada should deny Harry and Meghan's request to live half of their time in this country because it threatens our democracy. And variations on a scheme. News that a fugitive business tycoon smuggled himself out of Japan in a musical instrument case prompts Yamaha to issue a warning to copycat customers, do not try this at home. As it happens, the Tuesday edition, radio that prefers to be on the case rather than in it. Iran says those who are responsible for the Flight 752 crash will be punished. The country's judiciary says several arrests have been made after an Iranian missile shot down the Ukrainian airline's plane last week, killing 176 people. Today, Iranian President Hassan Rouhani called for a special court to investigate the crash, saying, quote, this is not an ordinary case. The entire world will be watching this court, unquote. Well, our next guest is watching from outside Iran. Her sister, an Iranian student studying at a Canadian university, was killed in the crash. And we're not naming our guest or the victim to protect the safety of their parents who are still in Iran. We're also protecting her exact location. First of all, I'm so sorry about the loss of your sister. Thank you. What has this week been like for you? I don't know what to say. It's a difficult time for me and my family. You and your siblings are not in Iran but your parents are in, in Iran, is that right? Yes, yes, they are in Iran, but uh, three of us are out of Iran. What's going on with your parents? What, what, how is this? How are they dealing with this since the crash in Iran? So we are experiencing the most tragic uh, moments and uh, hours of our life. Uh, my mom, my dad, they are not good at all, at all. Uh, we talk to them, we see their photos. My mom can't eat, can't uh, sleep, and uh, we are worry, really worry about uh, their health and about their condition. And we are not there to uh, help them, to do anything for them. I understand your mom and dad want to plan a funeral for your sister this week. Of course they do. So and how are those plans going? Uh, honestly, we were waiting uh, to hear from uh, the government about the bodies. Uh, 
to know what to do about the funeral, but they didn't tell us and uh, we didn't know what to do. So they planned and decided to arrange a funeral in this coming Thursday without hearing anything. What is the Iranian government telling them about your sister's remains then? They didn't tell us anything. Just uh, two days after the incident, they called them to do the DNA test. After that, we didn't hear anything. But I myself heard that a group from Canada, they have gone to Iran. I called them and asked them if there is anything remaining because we were thinking that nothing is left and everything is exploded. And they told me that uh, there is something remained, but uh, there are some of them are uh, horrible. Some of them are in better condition. But uh, so far, we haven't known anything about my sister's body. Your sister was not a Canadian citizen. She was studying in Canada. But uh, will Canada help you to get answers and to help your mom and dad recover remains, if they can, to have them interred? Is Canada going to help you with that? I don't know, because they couldn't uh, talk to my family because they can't speak English. Uh, Even I asked them if they want to talk to my parents. They said at the moment we haven't got uh, the full-time interpreter. So Canadians who are on the ground don't yet have an interpreter who can help? Yes. Will your parents go ahead with the funeral even if they can't recover your sister's body? Yes, yes. And how difficult is that going to be for for your family that they... It's not, it's, I can't say it's not easy. It's much more than difficult that um, I can't express in the, in the words how difficult it is. Yeah. It's really bad situation that uh, you lost somebody that you even haven't got uh, anything from her or him. And it's not just my sister. There are 175 uh, more people like my sister. How would you describe the way that the government of Iran has been treating your parents? Have they had a visit from the government? Uh, Yes, some of them went to my uh, parents. And uh, my dad uh, uh, had told them that uh, you are my guest. I accept you as my guest, but I don't accept you as a government member. Uh, you don't have to do any uh, filming or recording or anything. But after that, they uh, published some photos about the meeting to show that we were uh, with them and we went them to sympathetic with them, uh, but they didn't have the permission. They took photos and they published them to say what? Uh, They want to show that uh, it's not true that we don't care about the families of victims. They want to show some kind of show-off. So they wanted some some positive publicity about what they're doing for the families then? Exactly, yes. And, And your parents did not agree to that? No, no, not at all, not at all. But they did it anyways? Yes, without the permission. We spoke with an Iranian-Canadian doctor yesterday who says that even though he's in Iran and worried about 
if he can get out of the country when he wants to, he feels that he has to speak out, that this is just such a huge injustice that Iran shot down this plane, that they have to speak out. Do you feel that way? Do you share that view of the doctor that we spoke with? I have the same feeling because I can't uh, stay silent and uh, I like to show other people, other countries, to show the world that uh, what they did to us. What What do you want from Canada? What do you need from this country in order to help you get through this? As a family of a victim, the only thing that I uh, want uh, at this time and I, do, I want to stop uh, wanting it is to know whose fault is, uh, was that and the justice. We just need the justice. That's it. How difficult is it for you and your siblings to be not in Iran, not to be with your parents this week? Of course, our heart is there. It's very difficult for us not being there to be next to our family, to share our feelings together. But there's no choice. We can't do anything. We are all hoping to get answers to the questions you have. And uh, my sympathies, our sympathies go to you and your family. Please pass that on to your parents. Thank you so much. And thank you for speaking with us. Thank you. That was a woman whose sister died when Ukrainian Airlines Flight 752 was shot down in Iran last week. We're not naming our guest or her sister to protect their family's safety in Iran. Francois-Philippe Champagne is Canada's Minister of Foreign Affairs. We reached him in Toronto. Minister Champagne, we just heard from a woman who lost her sister in the crash. She says that what she wants Canada to do is to pursue justice. What do you say to her and those families? Well, listen, I spent uh, the full day uh, with families. Uh, families who are grieving, families who are expressing anger, uh, families who have questions, who deserve answers. Uh, my message to her is that we will be unwavering in our support to seek justice, to seek full accountability, uh, to make sure that the will, the wish of the families are respected with respect to the remains. We will be unwavering in asking the questions so that people can get closure, they can get compensation, they can get, um, as grieving families, as much as we can do to the as Canadian government to help them, help them go to this crisis. What does full accountability mean? Well, certainly we have been, as you know, the first priority has been to help the families. And the first thing we did was to make sure that we would have our team on the ground uh, in Tehran that would open consular services uh, across Canada in five cities, um, that we would uh, obviously provide all the information to the family. But in parallel to that, uh, we have made sure that we have our investigator on site to conduct the investigation. Uh, we have two TSB agents which are currently in Tehran uh, working with the Iranian authorities. Uh, my motto is trust but verify. Uh, I don't judge the Iranian government by their words. I judge them by their action. And so we're going to pursue full justice, and we're going to make sure that first we understand the full cause of the crash, that we understand who committed this horrible crime, and that these people are prosecuted in accordance with the highest standard 
of the law. Okay, and so, we want to be part of that investigation. Right. So Iran has announced it has arrested uh, people in the downing of the Ukrainian craft. Uh, they say that uh, the President Hassan Khani said that uh, the judiciary would form a special court with a ranking judge, dozens of experts. He says this is not an ordinary case. The entire world will be watching this court. Is that what full accountability looks like to you? Is that, is that what you're pursuing? Well, what I say, it seems to be the words that go in that direction. But what I want to see, Carol, is actions. Uh, I will be judging, the world will be judging, the international community will be judging Iran based on action. So I saw that today, but I remain uh, always on the watch to see what's going to happen next. And certainly Canada will be one a part of the investigation at every step of the way, because families deserve justice, families deserve answers. And we will pursue that not only as Canada, but, you know, we have created an international response uh, group, uh, which is going to meet in London. We're going to speak with one voice for the victims, and and we will continue to pursue that to the fullest extent. Canada is saying there are 57 Canadian citizens who died on that plane. I'm sure you've heard that the Iranian state media is saying there were just three Canadians on board Flight 752 because of the dual citizenship. They don't recognize those who who are have that who hold two passports. So, what effect will that is that going to have on your ability to help those Canadians if Iran doesn't acknowledge that they are Canadians? Well, I would say it's nonsense. Uh, from the first moment we heard that, we pushed back. We said uh, a Canadian is a Canadian is a Canadian. So these people deserve the protection, the consular protection of Canada. Uh, we have pushed and I've talked to the, or I've been in contact with the Iranian foreign minister today to make sure that the wish of the families are are, are taken into account, that, that, you know, the remains are, um, you know, whether people want to repatriate the remains in Canada or the type of burial that they want, that we respect the wish of families. And we will continue to push for that and offer all consular assistance uh, to Canadians. We will not accept uh, that position, and we have already pushed back and been very, very clear to the Iranian regime that this is not going to hold. I think the world is watching, and under the circumstances, I would expect and I demand that Iran would, would obviously... Uh, respect what Canada wants when it comes to its own citizens. We heard um, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau, he said that if there were no tensions, if there was no escalation in the region, those Canadians would be right now home with their families. If, if, if Iran is not alone in creating that tension, so uh, what responsibility does Washington have to bear? Not criminal responsibility, but what responsibility do you want Washington to accept for this escalation that created these conditions? I would say all our efforts, uh, Carol, now are helping the families and, and making sure that the remains are dealt with with the wish of the family. There will be a lot of time to uh, assess the conclusion of the expert report with respect to the cause and assigned responsibility. But for the time being, you would appreciate that we spend our days, I spend my afternoon grieving with families, uh, listening to them, uh, making sure that every needs they have uh, as a whole of government, uh, that we can respond to that, and that will remain my priority. And there'll be time uh, later on to assess, you know, uh, the responsibility for the horrendous uh, act that occurred. And when you do have a full sense of that responsibility, if that should come to pass, and you're determined, you say, to get that. But if you find that that crash extends beyond these people who have been arrested in Iran, that there are military or even political leaders, there are, are people very, very high up in the authority chain of Iran, that you identify that. How far is the Canadian government willing to go and to pursue justice? What price are you willing to pay on the world stage for that? 
Well, I would say we will hold them to account, whoever they might be. Uh, and it's not just Canada. I can assure you that the international coordination and response group uh, seeking the same thing. And I would say even beyond that, you may recall one of the first interview I was saying where, where people were asking me, what is Iran doing? I'd say, you know what, whatever they do, the world is watching. And, you know, what's going on now, people are judging each and every move that the Iranian government is doing. The first thing initially was denial, then they accepted responsibility. We want them to accept full responsibility, and we will pursue justice to the end and hold whomever has caused or has contributed to this horrific, tragic uh, situation that we're facing, that they pay for what they have done. Mr. Champagne, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. François-Philippe Champagne is Canada's Minister of Foreign Affairs. We reached him in Toronto. Stephen Harper was not disguising his disdain for Iran's rulers today. The former Prime Minister was speaking at a conference in New Delhi, and here's some of what he had to say. You know, in Canada, uh, we just suffered a tremendous loss of life uh, as a consequence of the Iranian action shooting down the Ukrainian Airlines flight, and this is obviously... In my country right now, it's a subject of of great um, sorrow, and I want to give my condolences to all the families affected. I think it's also the subject of of great anger. I I don't think any of us believe that Iran would have deliberately shot down an aircraft, but the very fact that Iran, believing such a thing could happen, would be allowing normal civilian traffic, I think, tells you something about the nature of that regime and its priorities. And I, you know, I do believe we need to see a change in Iran if we are going to see peace in the Middle East. I see an increasing number of states in the region, um, Israel that I'm, I'm close to, the, certainly the Sunni Arab uh, monarchies, others who are increasingly trying to work together and see a common future and common interests. And you have this one actor that, quite frankly, is... Uh, you know, based on religious fanaticism and regional imperialism and, as I say, as a friend of the Jewish people, frankly, an anti-Semitic state. And I think if somehow, if there's is there any way through the protests in Iran or the consequences of this that Iran could go on a better trajectory, I think that would be very core to resolving the problems of the Middle East, certainly not resolve them all overnight. But I think without a, ver- a change in the nature of the government of Tehran, the Middle East will continue to be in turmoil. That was former Prime Minister Stephen Harper speaking at a conference in New Delhi. Tony Keller has one word for the Duke and Duchess of Sussex, and that word is no. Mr. Keller is the editor of the editorial page at the Globe and Mail, and he says Canadians should not welcome the news that Harry and Meghan plan to move part-time to our neck of the Commonwealth. We also shouldn't welcome them. The Queen officially okayed the idea yesterday, and Prime Minister Trudeau has suggested that negotiations are underway. But Mr. Keller believes that having the no longer quite so senior royals around could represent a threat to Canadian democracy. We reached Tony Keller in Toronto. Tony, what makes Harry and Meghan dangerous to Canadian democracy? So we have a long-standing understanding of how monarchy works in Canada. It's kind of complicated, but we have a monarchy, we have a queen, but on the other hand, we have 
unusually, a monarch, a queen who doesn't live in Canada, the family members don't live in Canada, and we have this, I think the system works because there is that distance. The way I've described it is Canada has a virtual monarchy and a virtual crown, and there's actually something wonderful and effective about it. It really reduces the level of, uh, of arguments that we can have over it. But you go beyond just a technical reason why they shouldn't. I mean, this is a pretty harsh editorial. You say the Sussexes are working out their own personal issues and Canada wishes them the best of luck. But if you're a senior member of a royal family, this country cannot become your home. Canada is not a halfway house for anyone looking to get out of, the, out of Britain while remaining a royal. That's pretty harsh, don't you think? Um, I don't know if it's harsh. I, I think it's kind of accurate. Uh, it had ever been suggested in the past that a member of the royal family, senior members of the royal family, prince and princess so-and-so, move to Canada. It would have been problematic in the past because the relationship was evolving between Canada and Britain. We were trying to figure out how does this all work. The relationship we've ended up with is... Britain is just a a foreign country with which we have wonderful relations, and we happen to share a monarch with Britain, and this sort of muddies all of that. (laughs) Well, the the Queen announced on Monday that her grandson, the Duke, and his wife, Duchess of Sussex, are going to spend part of their year in Canada. She's given it her blessing. Can she actually do that? Is it that simple? If they were members, if they were regular, normal members of the royal family who wanted to make a royal visit to Canada, there'd be this communication between the Canadian government and the Crown, the Canadian government and these members of the royal family, and and, then the government and the royal family would sort of figure out when was the appropriate time for the visit. You know, this happens regularly, whether whether it's the Queen or other members of the royal family coming to Canada. This is the head-scratching part because we're dealing with some members of the royal family who are sort of saying they don't want to be members of the royal family anymore, but they also do want to remain members of the royal family. They're not, they're not abdicating, they're not uh, surrendering their titles and becoming just regular people, but they're also not remaining entirely within the royal family. So it, it's a bit confusing how all this is supposed to work. And what would the status be? Because if they are, because UK citizens are allowed to come to Canada for visits up to six months, but they right. can't. But they can't be working. They they can visit for that long. Um, if they they've said they want to set up a business, they want to become independent at the same time to keep a, a foot in the royal camp. So what happens then? I mean, could you just run that one through? Do they end up paying taxes here, or do they have to become citizens to do that? It does seem to me that they they are attempting to do something that could be you know perfectly legal for regular regular visitors from Great Britain to do, which is to come to Canada for six months and then leave in a period under six months and then come back for another visit. Um, But if they're actually attempting to operate a business in Canada, that's going to create tax issues and immigration issues. On the other hand, if they're operating a business that is outside of Canada while they just happen to be visiting Canada, that's not going to create any immigration issues. So yeah, they're, they're, they may have to finesse this. <laughs> it may have to be finessed exactly what they are doing here and how long they are staying and for what purposes. Your columnist John Ibbotson says that they, they might end up try to, trying to be queue jumpers, which of course Canadians take a dim, a dim look at, and that really when you look at uh, Prince Harry, his, the score he would have if he wanted to be an immigrant to Canada, 
he wouldn't do well, would he? He's an older person when he's in his 30s. It's, he doesn't get points for that. He has apparently no formal post-secondary education. So do you think that they, is there another way they could just come in? I know you're not an immigration lawyer, but yes. I mean, what hoops yeah. might they have to jump through? It would be It would be challenging for them to immigrate to Canada, particularly if Harry were to be the one who was the primary <laughs> immigrant applicant. On the other hand, his wife, Megan might actually make a much better immigration application or an application for permission to remain in Canada and work because she did work in Canada for many years uh, as an actor on a successful television show. Um, we don't really know the details of her immigration status and how she got into Canada and how she remained in, in Canada, but she's she would seem to have actually a better uh, shot at a permanent resident application than he would. And again, that assumes they want to remain permanent residents of Canada. It sort of looks more like Canada is just the stopping point between uh, the UK and and the United States. Tony, we'll leave it there. Of course, this is going to go on, and I appreciate speaking with you today. Thanks very much, Carol. Bye. Tony Keller is the editor of the editorial page at The Globe and Mail. We reached him in Toronto. Carlos Ghosn was in a tight spot, and if the latest reports prove true... He got out of it by squeezing himself into an even tighter one. Last November, the former head of Nissan and Renault was placed under house arrest in Tokyo. Then just before the new year, Mr. Ghosn vanished, before reappearing in Beirut. He has not disclosed how he managed to get out of Japan, but reports now indicate he did it and closed in a large audio equipment case. A story in the Wall Street Journal said that such a case was discovered at the back of a private jet believed to have smuggled Mr. Ghosn out of Japan. Whatever the case, the tale of Mr. Ghosn's dramatic escape has inspired some musicians to escape the boredom of practicing by posting photos of themselves climbing into their own empty instrument cases. That's sort of funny, but not to Yamaha's wind instrument division, which was moved to issue this plea on Twitter, quote, please do not do this. Musical instrument and audio equipment cases are designed to hold musical instruments and audio equipment. Please use them correctly, unquote. It's sound advice. Humorless, but sound. And hopefully it will help to draw a few musicians out of their shells. When Dominique Walker moved back to Oakland, she knew it would be tough to find a place to live, but she never expected it would take so long to find a home. And she also likely never expected that she and her kids would be squatting in it. But in November, Ms. Walker and a group of moms moved their families into a vacant home in West Oakland, one belonging to a property management company. When that company filed an eviction notice, the moms went to court, filing a right-to-possession claim. They lost, and today the sheriff arrived and the families were evicted. We reached Dominique Walker in Oakland, California. Dominique, you knew this moment was coming eventually, but how are you feeling today after you've been evicted from this house on Magnolia Street? I feel like 
We never expected this system to rule in our favor because we know that it was set up to protect the wealthy and their property. So we were just waiting on the day. And that happened early this morning. Right. Tell us what happened, because some of your supporters were arrested in this. What what exactly happened after the sheriff arrived? I was not present. I was actually on Democracy Now! live, and we had to end the show and rush back to Magnolia Street. Um, I believe that they um, broke down the door and came in the house and arrested folks two of our supporters and two of our moms. But there were a lot of people who had gathered to support you at the house, right? So That was the previous night. Um, so last night, around 6 o'clock, we saw sheriffs driving around. We sent out a mass text to our supporters. In a matter of 15 minutes, there were 300-plus people ready to defend mom's house. Huh. What do you mean when you say mom's house? Describe what you're referring to. The house on twenty nine twenty eight Magnolia Street. Um, we call it Mom's house. And how did you come to live in that house on Magnolia Street? Um, being homeless with our children and going through what they say are the proper channels when you need some kind of assistance and finding no help. This was a act of desperation of mothers who had the courage to stand up for their children. We've had enough, and we're like-minded. Everyone I met when I moved back to California in April were going through the same thing as me, so I know that it wasn't a coincidence. So you moved back to California with your child, your kids? Um, I have a one-year-old son and a five-year-old daughter. And where were you living? What were, how were you living before you uh, found this house? Um with different family members. Um, my family is displaced like so many others who were born and raised in Oakland. Um, so I was staying with a family member in Stockton, and then I moved with a family member in Antioch, Then I was staying in different hotels around Oakland and the Bay Area. And what effect did that have on your kids? Homelessness affects your physical health, your mental health, and brain development in children. So being sheltered has helped my children so much. My son took his first steps in the house on Magnolia Street. He said his first words in that house. My daughter celebrated her fifth birthday in that house. I've seen my children develop just from having shelter. It is a basic need. It's a basic human right. We should have shelter for all of our children. The house is owned by a company called Wedgwood Property Management. Why was it empty? What was going on with that house? Um, the house had been vacant for over two and a half years. Wedgwood recently bought it for $500,000. Wedgwood is um, composed of different companies who all have a hand in mass displacement of people um, in communities. They profit off the foreclosure crisis. They fix and flip them, and their main objective is to either hold them until they can profit for them or flip them for a price that folks from Oakland can't afford. But they wouldn't sell us the house. We occupied the house, but we also offered to purchase the home for the price they paid for it through our Oakland Community Land Trust. 
they refuse to sell the house to us. This house means nothing to them. They have a catalog of, of properties that they own. But they say that nonetheless it is theirs, and someone representing Wedgwood told you you were stealing it, that you had no business being there. What do you say to them? They have no business being in our communities. They're profiting off of harm. They have blood on their hands. What do you mean by that? They play a hand in the mass displacement of people, and companies like them are the reason that folks are living on the street and dying. But they said that they wouldn't sell you the house unless you moved out, that they were not going to negotiate anything with you as long as you were there. What do you say to them? Um, That is an absolute lie because they've also said that they wanted to sell it to a first-time home buyer and wanted a nonprofit to fix it up. So there's two different things that they're saying. I'm not clear on which one that they're sticking to. Uh They've also offered to help you to uh, find housing, uh, going to the uh, to to charities in order to make that happen. Why why don't you accept that? They offered to pay for two months at a shelter. I've never heard of a shelter where you have to pay to be there. So that offer is not only false. We reached out to. Catholic Charities, who they named, and they said that they did not accept that offer, and they specifically told them that two months was not enough for the mothers. What's happened with the house now? Can you get access to it? Can you get your things out of it? Yes. I will be collecting my belongings in the next day or so. But you can't live there anymore? No. Where are you going to go? We have a place to, to stay tonight. Folks have offered us places to stay. It was never about this one house. It's about all unhoused folks. That's what this movement is about. This is the new civil rights movement, the movement for housing for all. Dominique, I appreciate speaking with you. Thank you. Good night. Dominique Walker is the founder of Moms for Housing and part of a group of moms who took over a vacant home in Oakland, California. We reached her in Oakland. Since Nikki Diaher started sharing makeup tutorials on YouTube 11 years ago, she's become one of the most popular beauty vloggers on the site. In her videos that have been viewed 1.2 billion times, The Dutch 25-year-old has also shared bits and pieces of her personal life. But there was one thing she kept private after she became a YouTube star. When Ms. Diaher started her channel, Nikki Tutorials, at 14 years old, she was also beginning another transition in her life. Yesterday, in a video titled, I'm Coming Out, Nikki Diaher revealed that she's transgender. Here she is explaining to her viewers why she decided to talk about it. I am me. I am still Nikki. Nothing changes about that. The last thing I want in my life is for you to not trust me anymore or to look at me with different eyes or look at me in a different manner or think that I have changed. I have changed in a bit because, damn, this feels liberating and freeing. But I, at the end of the day, am still Nikki. I've always wanted to share this side of my story with you. I just wanted to do it under my conditions, but apparently we live in a world where other people hate on 
people that are truly themselves. I have been blackmailed by people that wanted to leak my story to the press. And at first, it was frightening. It was frightening to know that there are people out there that are so evil that they can't respect someone's true identity. It is vile and it is gross. And I know you are watching this. They said they wanted to leak it because I'm lying or that I don't want to tell my truth or because they feel like I'm too scared for people to know who I truly am. I'm not scared. Today is the day I am free and I get to be me. Finally, please know that this doesn't change anything about me. My love for makeup has always been real. I have always been real. I have no idea how this is gonna go. I don't know if people are gonna hate me. I don't know if people are gonna accept me. All I know is that I haven't changed. You're seeing the same Nikki right now as you saw a couple of years ago. Now, if you look at my first video, however, that is a change because I have grown into a self-respecting, loving woman. Nikki Diyahar speaking to her 12.8 million subscribers and revealing that she's transgender. The YouTube star transitioned when she was a teenager, the same time she started uploading videos onto the platform. She had never discussed it publicly until yesterday. In the midst of ongoing impeachment proceedings south of the border, it can be easy to lose track of how this all started, which was with U.S. President Donald Trump asking Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky for information on Joe Biden and his son Hunter. Why he did it and how he did it and whether there was a quid pro quo and whether any of that warranted impeachment is, of course, up for vigorous debate. But the transcript of a July 2019 phone call confirms that Mr. Trump did, in fact, ask... And now an American security firm has revealed that Russian intelligence recently hacked the very same Ukrainian gas company at the center of that ask, Burisma Holdings. Blake Darshay is the chief strategy officer for Area One, the security firm that published the report. We reached him in Menlo Park, California, near San Jose. Mr. Darshay, how did you determine that agents of the Russian military and intelligence hacked into the computers of Burisma Holdings? We collected various pieces of information that allowed us to correlate that an attack had occurred by the Russian GRU against Burisma Holdings through a variety of telemetry that uh, we collect as a company. GRU, can you tell us what that is and what they were up to? Sure. The GRU is Russia's main military intelligence group, and they're responsible for collecting typically military intelligence, but also conducting information warfare operations. So the Russian GRU registered various uh, lookalike domain names, use those fake lookalike domain names to send malicious links to email addresses associated with Burisma Holdings in order to facilitate a user to click on that link and enter their username and password and have their credentials stolen so they could gain access to those accounts. And this is what's known as phishing? 
this is what is known as fishing. And for an audience in Canada that may not know all the details, we should remind them that Donald Trump's impeachment was based on allegations that he was pressuring Ukraine to collect political dirt on the Bidens to uh, to look into uh, Joe Biden's son Hunter and his work with this company, Burisma Holdings. Do you think these Russian hackers were after the same thing? It remains to be seen. Uh, the Russians have been seen doing this before in the 2016 cycle. I mean, it's possible Russia thinks there's some sort of incriminating evidence, uh, but, you know, that remains to be seen. Uh, but it looks like they were trying to collect emails regarding possibly uh, Hunter Biden. But we're uncertain at this point if that's exactly correct or not. And what about the timing of this? When was this hack taking place? So we noticed it uh, on December 31st. The first attack by the Russians took place in early to mid-November, and then again throughout December. So the Russians started attacking this entity and its subsidiaries right around the kickoff of the impeachment hearings. And what do you make of that? Well, I'm of the opinion, you know, there's no such thing as a coincidence, typically with timeframes like that. So it looks significant, but why it's significant, I'm not sure of at the moment. And given how they've operated in the past, what might they do with any any information, anything they have on Hunter Biden, if that's what they were seeking, what might they do with that now, given the, their, their past activities and patterns? Well, they could try to give it to uh, the media in the United States. They could try to post it online directly, and they could give it to WikiLeaks. They could give it to another foreign government. They could try to give it to a member of, of the U.S. government, uh, an elected official. You know, the rushing goal in this operation is likely to create chaos. Uh, that seems to be their MO at this point. Can you just tell us how this investigation compares with what we know about uh, Russian hacking in 2016 against the Democratic National Committee and Hillary Clinton's campaign chair, John Podesta? How does this operation compare with that one? From a timeline perspective, it compares directly. Uh, when John Podesta clicked the first link that granted the GRU access to his email account, That's basically what we've just highlighted here. This is the very beginning of that cycle, and that's why we highlighted it uh, to the New York Times. But then so that that you caught it early, so it may be not to the place where they had the emails that they could dump and have the effect that they had on the election at that time. Is that right? We caught it early, but I'm just highlighting kind of from a timeline perspective kind of where we are in the attack cycle. Just having access to a single email box might be all the Russians were interested in. It's unknown. So just a single email box might be enough for the Russians to cause quite a bit of chaos in the U.S. electoral process. And is that what they do? Is that what you think that they're aiming to do? I do. I think the Russians are interested in turning, you know, Democrats and Republicans against each other to cause the country to spiral into a non-functional state. And thus Russia can rise to a greater power. And we alerted the New York Times on it because we think it's in the public's interest to understand that the Russians are trying to possibly cause chaos in the 2020 election cycle. But it's not necessarily going to stop that chaos, right? I mean, if the information it may not stop that chaos, but it may it may encourage certain certain organizations to better protect uh, their information moving forward and try to prevent additional damage from being done. So, what 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 do you think we might see next, if anything, from this? I think that remains to be seen. It could be a 
kind of a silent period. Um, we could also see attacks further pivot against, uh, you know, more U.S. political candidates, but we haven't seen that yet. Um, so we don't know yet. Is it getting more sophisticated, this hacking? We haven't noticed any significant increase in GRU's uh, sophistication level, but you don't have to be sophisticated to be effective. And oftentimes, people confuse effectiveness with sophistication, thinking that you have to be sophisticated to be effective, when in fact you don't. Because what's worked in the past can work again. Correct. Uh-huh. And so, what, but do you expect to see more of this? Should we expect to see more of these kinds of reports, that, like the one you have just issued? I do. I think uh, we will see more of this in the future, and probably not just by Russia. We'll see other countries try to begin kind of moving down the same road. All right. Cautionary tale. Mr. Darche, thank you. Thank you so much. Bye. Blake Darche's company, Area One Security, recently determined that Russian intelligence has been hacking Burisma Holdings. That's the Ukrainian oil and gas firm at the center of Donald Trump's impeachment. We reached Mr. Darche in Menlo Park, California. For more on this story, visit our website at cbc.ca slash AIH. He was the patriarch of New York City's oldest Irish pub. And to regulars, Matty Maher was, quote, a five foot eight spark plug with a belly laugh that could fill the room. Matty Maher, the owner of McSorley's Old Ale House, died on Saturday of lung cancer. He was 80 years old. McSorley's opened in the East Village in 1854. Mr. Maher, an Irish immigrant, took over the dive bar in 1977. It's known for its sawdust covered floors and its two kinds of beer light and dark. But McSorley's also attracted attention for its memorabilia, like its chandelier made of wishbones. Back in 2011, Mr. Maher spoke to Carol on this program after the New York City Health Department expressed concerns over that wishbone chandelier. It's about 37, 38 inches in length, and it has two lights on it, one at each end, the old gas lights. And what's special about it? Well, there's nothing special. What became really special was the wishbones that put up on it way, way back. Now, this, the wishbones, these are chicken bones? Yeah, no, well, turkey bones. Turkey bones. And so how did it so... I started with, uh, you see, uh, Custer's Regiment, General Armstrong, Custer, Civil War General. Yes. They were stationed across the street from McSorley's back Civil War. We go back pre-Civil War. And uh, when they went to Gettysburg... There was, uh, like, someone of not coming back and so forth, but what they used to do, they would have a turkey dinner, and they would hang bones on the wishbone, and they wouldn't come back to take them down off it. Do you follow me? Uh-huh. And the odd one that was left was the one that didn't come back, and it became a tradition. Now, nobody can, we, none of us can verify anything because them bones disintegrated probably 40, 50, 60 years ago. But it became a tradition, so then it has took off in World War One, World War II, uh, the Vietnam War. It's servicemen. We have three bones now, three new ones from the Iraq War. They haven't got the dust yet. That's what the whole controversy is over is that uh, a lot of dust accumulated, and every once in a while a bone would fall down, or, you know, the dust would fall down, and especially if somebody is eating underneath it, you have a problem. From our archives, that was Maddie Maher speaking with Carol in April 2011.
Mr. Maher, the owner of McSorley's Old Ale House in New York, died on Saturday. He was 80 years old. You've been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1 and on Sirius XM, following the world at 6. You can also listen to the whole show on the web. Just go to cbc.ca slash AIH and follow the links to our online archive. Thanks for listening. I'm Carol Off. And I'm Chris Howden. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.